The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And she's made very clear both in this hearing and also in the last hearing that if these sorts of behaviors continue, that a trial date will be set sooner rather than later. And it seems like he cannot help himself. And that leads me to believe that even if March 4th is a placeholder, she won't veer too far off from that date. It'll be in that ballpark. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 2nd, 2023. It's a special edition of the Lawfare Podcast, another episode of our series, Trump Trials and Tribulations, recorded live on YouTube before an audience of Lawfare material supporters. You can become a member of that live audience by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at lawfaremedia.org slash support. In this episode, I sat down with Lawfare Senior Editor Quinta Jurassic and Lawfare Legal Fellows Sarafin Danani and Anna Bauer to get an update on everything that's been going on in the Mar-a-Lago case, in the Georgia-Fulton County case, and in the January 6th case in Washington. We talked about that marathon hearing in Georgia where Mark Meadows testified. We talked about Judge Chutkin setting a trial date in Washington. We talked about why Judge Cannon in Florida is not doing anything. And we talked about the non-criminal cases, the attorney discipline cases that a number of lawyers involved in January 6th are facing. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 2nd, Trump Trials and Tribulations, an update. Let's uh, let's start with a bit of a wrap up. Uh, before we forget, I want to give, I want to not forget to uh, give a little update on the Mar-a-Lago case, which has tends to get forgotten these days because. The others are moving so quickly, and it's not. So let's uh, catch up with that. The reason you haven't heard much about Mar-a-Lago recently is that almost nothing has happened. The government is seeking Garcia hearings, which is to say hearings to inquire into the possible conflicts of interest of defense counsel to make sure uh, defendants are aware of possible conflicts and are knowingly waiving uh, such possible conflicts. The defense are uh, objecting to this. Uh, There are also some outstanding uh, SEPA issues that have been uh, brought to the court's attention. Uh, Judge Cannon has basically not ruled on anything 
Uh, and so there really isn't anything to talk about. So it's not that people are forgetting about these hearings, this case. It's really that it is uh, moving in relatively slow motion in comparison to the other two cases, which have been super busy of late. And so uh, let's do these in order. Anna Bauer, give us a little Fulton County update. Where are we and uh, what's happened over the course of the week? It's, it's hard to even know where to start with Fulton County because there's been so much. Uh, but last week, every all of the 19 defendants were booked at the Fulton County Jail. Uh, and then this week, we've started to see a, a flurry of motions coming in on the docket. It's very hard to keep track of when there's 19 defendants, but... Uh, some of the bigger developments that we've seen include uh, Sidney Powell and Ken Cheese or Chesbro, I should say. Now I know how to pronounce his name. It's the cheese. The cheese. But it's Chesbro. Chesbro. <laughs> the cheese Chesbro has filed a speedy trial uh, demand and, and, and so has Sidney Powell. And, and Donald Trump's team indicated that they would seek to sever his case from any defendant who uh, seeks a speedy trial demand. So even though we have Chesbro's trial set for October and potentially a Sidney Powell trial uh, that could be set for October. Trump is, is this afternoon filed a, a demand to sever from, from anyone else who, who would file such a demand. And then also we've got all these removal matters going on. Mark Meadows took the stand on Monday as he seeks to move his case to federal court. And then there's four other defendants who have, who have filed notices of removal. That's, uh, David Schaefer, Kathy Latham, and Sean Still, who were all alternate or, or fake electors. Uh, and then we also have Jeffrey Clark, the former DOJ official who, and, and Judge Jones has already set some hearings on those removal matters in September. I think it's the 18th and the 20th of September. So I think that's a good summary of what's going on, but there's a lot. And we've got arraignments coming up this week. All right. And you sat through one of the removal hearings on Monday. Uh, we did a full lawfare podcast on that, so no need to rehash it in detail but what what's the what's the core of the argument now before Judge Jones on that? So I, I do you mean the additional briefing or the uh, the well? So the, there was the Meadows testimony um, and mm -hmm. accompanying arguments, and then Judge Jones asked for additional briefing. So what's what are the arguments that are placed before him, and what is the argument that he's asking for? Right. So, it, so just to remind everyone, Meadows is arguing for removal based on the idea that everything that he did that is listed in the indictment it was were things that he did within the scope of his duties as chief of staff. 
He set out a really broad scope of his official duties as he testified in court on Monday. And, and he tried to argue that, you know, anything that he did, setting up the Raffensburger call, uh, meeting with legislators about uh, ways to uh, subvert the results of the election, all of those things he said he did in his role as chief of staff to manage Donald Trump's time or, uh, you know, to try to uh, facilitate a peaceful transition of power, all of those things. So Judge Jones, though, ordered some additional briefing, and it takes a, a, a little bit of understanding of how RICO prosecutions work to, to get what he's asking for. In the indictment, there's all of these acts that are listed. And, and some of those acts are predicate acts, which are crimes that form the basis of a racketeering conspiracy or a pattern of criminal conduct amongst this group of folks who are associated with each other. But then other parts of those acts are what call what are called overt acts. Those are, you know, steps that are taken uh, in furtherance of the cons- alleged conspiracy. And they're not necessarily crimes in and of themselves, but they're things that the prosecution is allowed to introduce in this kind of case to you know, prove that these were folks who had a common, you know, uh, objective to the enterprise that they formed together. Um, and so Judge Jones in the hearing had some questions about, you know, well, what if some of these overt acts that Meadows did, some of them being, you know, ask John McEntee to write a memo about how to overturn the election or uh, meeting with legislators. Those are some of the acts that Meadows is uh, alleged to have done in furtherance of, of the conspiracy. And, and Judge Jones wants to know from both sides, well, if, if, what if I find that at least one of those acts, those overt acts were done within the scope of Meadows office? So he wants to know if that negates the state's efforts to keep the prosecution in state court rather than federal court. So is it sufficient for Meadows to show that at least one of those acts in the indictment could get him into federal court. Does that make sense? Yep. All right. So before we move on, uh, Donald Trump today waived arraignment. Should we uh, assume that the other defendants are going to do the same? Or are we, as we last week had a spree of surrenders and mugshots, this week we're going to have a, a spree of arraignments? I think most of them will waive, but I also think, you know, there's something to the visual of, of showing up in, in court that could actually facilitate for some of them, maybe some donations to fundraising campaigns that they have going on. Um, that might be something that they're considering as they think about whether or not to, to waive or, or to not waive this appearance. Uh, and then, you know, I, some criminal defense attorneys will advise clients to show up in person because there's, you know, a kind of signaling to the the judge who is the presiding judge that, you know, you're taking this really seriously and you bothered to show up. So there could be some small element of that in play, but um, I think most of them will waive. All right. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., uh, a different judge, a different criminal case, 
but more or less uh, much of the same conduct involve Serafin. You were uh, in court for uh, Judge Chutkin's uh, hearing. Give us a little update on where we are in the January 6th federal case in, in Washington. So this Monday, Judge Chutkin had the uh, status conference and she also held a pre-trial SIPA hearing. And the basis of these meetings was to decide on a trial date. So if you'll remember, the government had proposed January 2024 as an appropriate time to start trial. And defense had said, wait, that's far too early. They asked for two more years, which would be April 2026. And they gave two reasons why that was the case. The first was that they had quite a few novel legal theories that they needed time to research and brief about and make arguments for. And then the second reason is because the volume of discovery was so large in their opinion that they needed a lot of time to go through it. And all in all, it would take about two years. And much of the hearing was uh, rooted in the second question of how big is too big of discovery. And frankly, Judge Chutkin was really unsympathetic to defense's arguments. She said a few things, some of them including, look, you had time to go through these documents. You knew that indictment was pending. Grand jury was uh, formed in September 2022. That was plenty of time. A lot of these documents are also duplicative. They're in Trump's possession. A lot of them are documents that Trump himself created or his PACs created or his campaign created. And so these aren't wholly new documents. Uh, ultimately, she decided on March 4th as the trial date, uh, March 4th, 2024, which obviously is closer to the date that the government had requested. Uh, she said this would be plenty of time for both parties to have their cases ready. And uh, if you'll remember, no, uh, the New York case is scheduled just a few weeks after that. And she made clear that she'd spoken to the judge in New York, Judge Marchin, and that there doesn't seem to be any sort of timeline issue with both cases happening proximate to each other. So I'm, I'm curious for your sense of how stable the March 4th, you know, sometimes when a judge sets a trial date, it's kind of a placeholder. Sometimes it's an aspirational, but nobody takes it that seriously. Sometimes a judge has kind of heard the arguments and is like, I want to get this done in March. How do you read Judge Shutkin in this? Should we take March 4th seriously as a date on which this trial is going to start? Give or take. I mean, lawyer gets the flu, whatever, you're going to push it off by a week or two. Or should we take it as a, you know, a kind of placeholder or should we take it as a loose aspiration? I wouldn't take it as a loose aspiration. You can take it as a placeholder, but I would be hard pressed to find a reason why Judge Chutkin would not want the state to stay stable or at least around that ballpark. And here's why. She was unsympathetic to defense's arguments about this being a novel legal theory. Uh, they proposed several motions that they'll file, uh, some of them including presidential immunity, which would question whether this case should even be heard. And of course, that motion is arguing that President Trump is being indicted for doing exactly what he was sworn to, not into office to do, which is to be president. And a lot of these sorts of arguments that they proposed, she wasn't quite buying it in that moment. 
And also when it comes to discovery, as I mentioned, she felt like all of this information, though voluminous, is not going to hinder their ability to go through it. Uh, she felt like the government put together a very comprehensive uh, search database for counsel to go in and literally control F and find the terms that they want. I also want to mention that she went through a SEPA hearing to determine what sorts of classified information. Let me rephrase that. She wanted to determine if classified information were to be used, what would be the timeline within which all of that would be appropriate to bring to the jury. And it seems like all in all, there doesn't seem to be a massive holdup, uh, both because the legal arguments that counsel has proposed aren't all that strong. The evidence and discovery that has been handed over by uh, the government seems to be manageable in Judge Shetkin's eyes. And also because there doesn't seem to be too much concern about uh, SEPA-related issues. I also want to mention that there's this issue with President Trump using Truth Social and both, um, you know, harassing witnesses and the judicial process, including the judge. And she's made very clear both in this hearing and also in the last hearing, I believe it was August 11th, when we discussed the protective order, that if these sorts of behaviors continue, that a trial date will be set sooner rather than later. And it seems like he cannot help himself. And that leads me to believe that even if March 4th is a placeholder, she won't veer too far off from that date. It'll be in that ballpark. All right. So one other thing before we move on, Mr. Laro, the new Trump lawyer, uh, continued his uh, pattern from the Sunday talk shows from a few weeks ago of teasing the substantive defenses that he was going to use in this hearing and specifically identified some motions he meant to file. What did we learn about Trump's coming? Uh, this is now purely legal defense. What motions should we expect him to be filing in the coming weeks? Sure. So the one I mentioned, executive immunity, and John Laura was very stern about that one, that that one would question whether this case should even be heard, whether this court or any court for that matter has jurisdiction to hear such a case. The other one is the uh, selective prosecution motion. And he said that he's filing it because, quote, the prosecutor's boss, meaning Joe Biden, is running a presidential campaign. And that's why Trump is before this court. Um, and he'd like to ensure that, you know, the judge considers whether prosecutors are biased towards one candidate versus another. Uh, he also mentioned that this is the first time 18 U.S.C. Section 371 is being used against a political opponent. Uh, that makes it a novel issue. He didn't quite say if there's going to be a motion specifically with that, but he did mention that that was going to be something that's going to feature prominently in, in the defense. There are going to be First Amendment issues. Uh, he plans to file several motions related to that. And then one of the more important ones, I would say, is motion to dismiss all charges. Right. So the select a selective prosecution uh, motion, the bar for that is extremely high. And I'm not sure how you would argue selective prosecution here, since you're talking about an N of one, right? I mean, no, normally when you have a selective prosecution case, it's like a sort of, well, everybody does this, and I'm being singled out because I'm Jewish, 
right? Or because I'm a political opponent of the president. But here, you can't say, well, everyone does this because not everyone's been president and had an election to try to overturn. And you can't say I'm being singled out because you're singular. And so I'm not really sure how you get to, I mean, that's like a green elephant saying I'm, you know, I'm being targeted because I'm a green, well, you are the only green elephant, you know? Um, it seems to me the more interesting motion is the executive authority motion. And what possible argument could you make that my being president entitles me to do some of the things that I'm being, some or all of the things that I'm being charged with doing here, and therefore the indictment is defective because, uh, as Nixon would say, when you're president and you do it, it's not illegal. Do we know anything about what he's going to argue in this motion? Or is it just a sort of title at this point? I think it's just a title at this point. We don't we don't have clarity. Uh, I know, Ben, you and I have been discussing this a little bit. There is a question of the clear statement rule that might come up. So, for example, let me back up and say the clear statement rule is essentially when Congress writes statutes, they don't single out the United States president when they say, you know, all people cannot cross the crosswalk when the light is red, for example. And the question is, well, does that statute apply to the president? And in the same way, these statutes that President Trump is being indicted under, charged under, do these statutes apply to him? And uh, the argument goes, uh, some would say that, well, if it's within President Trump's Article II authorities, uh, if his actions are within his Article II authorities, then that statute does not apply. Because if we were to apply that statute, then it would hinder his ability to carry out his responsibilities. Um, so basically, anything that he does outside the scope of his Article II authorities, the statute would apply. And I know Ben has argued this, and several others have argued this, that actually, even if there are actions that the president does within his Article II authorities, they could breach the statute if uh, the president is shown to have some sort of uh, corrupt intent. And so that is possibly one of the arguments he's going to make, um, but he hasn't clarified too much on what that will look like. I'll hand it over to you, Ben, in just one moment, but I did want to make a point about the um, selective prosecution motion that he suggested he would file. Now, I didn't type fast enough, so I, I couldn't get it down perfectly, but there was a point where John Loro said, as an aside, that, you know, the the prosecutor's boss is selectively bringing this case. And then he went on to say something about Hunter Biden and the president, you know, being in cahoots and, and there being a pending prosecution, but it not deserving the same due attention as this Trump case. So that might, that probably gives us a signal of the kind of argument he'll make. He'll probably bring in Hunter Biden as the right typically does in these sorts of situations. All right. So meanwhile, uh, the rest of the world actually stopped. It, it stopped rotating on its axis and nothing else happened. No, that's not really what happened. The rest of the world continued, including the rest of the Trump accountability world. And so Quinta, outside of Georgia federal court, 
pretending to be Fulton County Court and U.S. District Court in Washington pretending to be itself. Uh, what else has been going on? So we've had a bunch of activity in a couple different courtrooms. Um, so first in New York, uh, one of the other Trump cases that we've spent less time on because it's a little farther outside our issue area is the civil case filed by New York Attorney General Letitia James alleging fraud uh, over the management of Trump's businesses. So she filed a motion for partial summary judgment in New York court, alleging that Trump uh, inflated the value of his businesses by up to $2.2 billion each year over the course of a decade, uh, which is a pretty hefty number. That case is scheduled to go to a civil trial in October. So that will be going on quite soon as all the criminal trials continue to be hashed out. We also had uh, back in D.C. in the federal district court a default judgment handed down by former Chief Judge Beryl Howell against Rudy Giuliani in a civil defamation case filed by Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the mother-daughter Georgia election workers um, who were uh, Howell found um, arguably defamed by Rudy when he argued that they had been involved in efforts to flip the election in 2020. And so this is a kind of part of the pack of lawsuits that are sort of orbiting around the Dominion lawsuit. The Dominion was sort of the big uh, one that came on to everyone's attention in terms of using defamation law to push back against lies about the 2020 election. But this one has been going on for a long time. So Freeman and Moss originally, I believe, sued uh, both Giuliani and a number of his enterprises and uh, OAN, the far-right television network. OAN settled um, for an undisclosed agreement. Um, Now Giuliani has had this default judgment granted against him, essentially because he refused to hand over discovery material. And you can see that Howell is really kind of ticked off about this. The ruling is 57 pages, and she goes in, in some depth about the extent to which Giuliani just completely blockaded um, his discovery obligations and would not hand things over. Interestingly, I found uh, Judge Howell did kind of speculate a little bit. I don't have the quote in front of me, but, you know, maybe Giuliani is uh, has decided that his other civil and criminal liability is such that in this case, it serves him best to just not hand anything over and sort of deal with the default judgment. She's not particularly impressed by that strategy, if that is what Giuliani is doing. And so not only uh, ruled against him and found that he was liable for defamation, but also uh, decided that she is going to hand down sanctions against him for attorney's fees for Freeman and Moss. So the case is now going to go into a phase where it's decided just how much money uh, Freeman and Moss are going to get from Giuliani, um, but there are going to be those additional sanctions from the court on top of it for his refusal to cooperate. So that's civil court. Um, the other sort of universe that I've been looking into and that Lawfare just published a piece on today uh, that I put together is the universe of bar discipline. And so this is the sort of 
uh, legal profession uh, regulating itself. Um, a lot of these lawyers who were involved in efforts to overturn the 2020 election, if you looked at the January 6th indictment in federal court and the Georgia indictment, you'll note that there are a great number of indicted and unindicted co-conspirators who happen to be lawyers. Um, now, obviously, they're facing criminal charges, but many of them have been facing ethics charges from state bars as well. So essentially what that means is that uh, the bar will bring charges against you saying you have violated the state's rules of professional conduct for lawyers um, and that they will try to seek sanctions against you, which can range from a public censure to outright disbarment. Giuliani and Eastman, the bar authorities are seeking their outright disbarment. There are also proceedings going on uh, against Jeffrey Clark um, in D.C., as with Giuliani. There are proceedings going on in both Texas and Michigan against Sidney Powell. And so that is four of the five identified co-conspirators in the federal January 6th indictment, which is uh, pretty impressive, I think. And then there are also uh, potential other investigations going on against some of the other folks. We don't we don't know the details. Um, but I think what this this shows is that, you know, we're kind of having this pile up of accountability in different jurisdictions. Um, for a long time, things were quiet. There was a lot of frustration. I definitely voiced some of that frustration about, you know, where are the authorities on this? Where is when are we going to get accountability? And now we're kind of seeing everything pile up at once to the point where uh, Jeffrey Clark has filed a motion to stay the DC proceedings against him um, because he does have these ongoing criminal proceedings. Uh, John Eastman has unsuccessfully uh, attempted to put uh, the California bar proceedings against him on pause. He was actually indicted in Fulton County in the middle of a break in his bar trial. Uh, the judge was not hugely impressed with his reasoning. So his argument was essentially that he would be at risk of either essentially giving up his uh, chance to fight it out with the bar or potentially testifying and incriminating himself in the criminal case against him. Uh, the judge essentially said, no dice. We haven't had a ruling in the Clark case yet. But this is, you know, sort of another indication that everything is suddenly coming to a head. Um, it's been, you know, what, two and a half years since January 6th, and we're only now getting to this place, but it does seem like it's sort of finally happening all at once. And how do you read that? Is it, in your estimation, just that, you know, these cases take a while to develop, or is it that people were slow off the ball and then things snowball. I, I mean, what, what's your sense of why this is all happening all at once? It's a really good question. I mean, it's not wrong that these cases take a long time to develop. The, you know, bars do have to conduct a certain level of investigation. On the other hand, you know, if you look at, for example, the complaints against Eastman, the the California bar charges against Eastman are pretty much the same as the conduct that's described in the January 6th committee's report, 
which is pretty much the same as the conduct that's described in the federal January 6th indictment, which is pretty much the same as the conduct that's described in the Georgia (laughs) indictment. Um, And so to some extent, I think what we, I do wonder if some of what we're seeing is the January 6th committee kind of having given everyone a bit of a kick in the pants, um, which we know happened to some extent with the special counsel or a can't recall if it was the special counsel at that point, but the the Justice Department's yeah, uh, it's still the Justice Department. Okay, yes, then. thank you. Um, the federal investigation into Trump's involvement in January six, um, we know from reporting, kind of kicked up after the committee uh, put forward its the, some of the evidence that it had gathered in its hearings. And I do wonder, although of course there's no way to know if the same thing happened in a number of these cases. I mean, we know at least that. Giuliani has been investigated for quite a while because there was a a ruling in May 2021, a New York court suspended his license to practice law in that state um, on the grounds that there was already uh, there was an ongoing bar investigation into his conduct and that it was not in the public interest for him to be able to practice law in the meantime, which is a pretty rare thing to do that doesn't really happen. It's an indication of how seriously authorities are taking the conduct at issue. So this has been ongoing for quite a while, let's say. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. 
And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule all you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that whatever the investigation is, whether it's Georgia, whether it's federal, whether it's a bar discipline, it takes two and a half years. And there's a just a really interesting, you know, which is, by the way, very similar to the amount of time that the Watergate conspiracy took to get to trial, give or take, you know, that there's, there's something about these major presidential scandals that they take a, a kind of, there's a kind of fixed time to, to fruition. All right, we are going to go to audience questions uh, we are going to start with the anonymous attendee who writes, at this point, we have three tentative trial dates, March 4th for the January 6th case, three weeks later for the New York City trial, and sometime in May for Florida. How likely is it that any of these trials will actually take place before September 6th, 2024, which is 60 days before the election? And related to that, Will the special counsel's office be constrained by the DOJ policy of holding off during the fall campaign season? Um, so uh, I will take a crack at parts of this, though I want uh, Seraphine and Anna to take cracks at other parts of it. So uh, the DOJ, uh, the special counsel's office, is certainly constrained by the policy of holding off during the fall campaign season. But that does not refer to when a judge would set a trial date. That's a DOJ policy. It refers to overt investigative steps, like indicting somebody, like getting a search warrant. The setting of a trial date is a judicial scheduling matter, not a matter of DOJ policy. As to how likely it is that any of these trials will take place before the fall of 2024, I think it's quite likely. And uh, some of that is for the reason that Sarafin said, Judge Tanya Chutkin uh, seems to want to hold this in a expeditious fashion. And even Eileen Cannon, in the last hearing that uh, we covered, completely rejected the notion that she should wait until after the election. Um, although she seems to be moving at a snail's pace on its own merits, she does not, has not said that there's a, that that's a legitimate basis. And so I think it's really quite likely, um, that at least one of these cases will take place. And by the way, you know, part of the, uh, the Fulton County case is likely to take place very quickly because uh, Kenneth Chesbrough and others have invoked their speedy trial rights, um, which could mean that stuff happens as early as October. Um, and so while Trump will be severed from that, I assume, you know, you aren't talking about an environment in which things won't be moving. Anna, Sarafin, do you have uh, thoughts on this? I'll just add, in addition to what I had said earlier, I won't belabor the point, but if you look at Judge Chutkin's, the pace at which she has decided January 6th cases, 
I wouldn't say they're um, they're expedited, but but she does do them in a very timely manner. And so if that is any indication, I think we'll see something similar with the Trump case as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the the Jan six federal case could could go and even though it's quite close to the New York case, you know, there's been public comments by Alvin Bragg that he might, uh, I think the way he phrased it was do what's in the interest of justice or something and be flexible about potentially moving a a New York trial. Um, In Fulton County, Ben, I think you're right uh, that we could see something happen in October. Uh, However, the like wild card in all of this is what will happen with removal and whether or not those speedy trial demands still apply if the case is removed and everyone goes with anyone who is removed. There's this area of law is just really unsettled and, and it's no one really knows what will happen. Um, and then also, you know, under Georgia law, it's quite easy for a defendant to waive their uh, speedy trial demand by, you know, making some kind of affirmative uh, motion or action that causes delay. So we could, if, if uh, Chesbro or uh, Powell ends up uh, doing that and, and doing something that causes delay, then we could see that that trial is moved past October. So we'll see. All right. Josh has two questions. Uh, I will read them as uh, he says he doesn't have a microphone. Number one, as I understand it, the prosecution has some sort of special appeal right under WRT-SIPA matters. Uh, could this matter, the representation of Waltine Nauda by Stanley Woodward, be raised on appeal of any adverse ruling with respect to Nauda's access to classified documents? So on the theory that I probably know SIPA better than others present on this call. I will take this. If anybody disagrees with what I say, uh, jump in. I think the answer to that is no. So uh, the special appeal on SEPA, SEPA authorizes a pretrial interlocutory appeal for substitutions and other interlocutory rulings that judges make that effectively condition what evidence is going to be presentable at trial. So in other words, the mountain of classified information in back of me, if the judge says you can refer to all of that as the, as the stuff in the boxes, but not in more detail than that. And, you know, Quinta, who's the defendant, thinks that she needs more detail in order to characterize to refer to that material, she could take uh, the prosecution up to the 11th circuit and say, hey, I need, or or, sorry, the prosecution could and say, you're you're giving too much information to her. Um, I don't think you could use it to challenge whether an attorney is conflicted or or should be, you know, a defendant should have a different, you can't use it as a substitute for a Garcia hearing. It's a very narrow interlo- you know, most of these things are appealable only after conviction or dismissal. These SEPA hearings, these SEPA interlocutory appeals are designed to facilitate the decision about what information is going to be condition presentable at trial and i think nothing else 
Second question, um, hypothetically, could the special counsel make a criminal referral for suborning perjury to the Justice Department in relation to employee number four's false testimony before the now disbanded D.C. grand jury while he was represented by Woodward? This reminds one of the same sort of thing that happened with Cassidy Hutchinson and her testimony to the January 6th committee when she was represented by Stefan Passatano, Passantino, sorry. And by the way, whatever happened to Stefan Passantino? So I am ill positioned to answer this in any detail. I'm not sure if any of you have strong feelings about it. I think what the questioner here is referring to is the fact that, that this person who has reportedly flipped, according to uh, various news reports, has said that he uh, lied previously and has now come clean and is cooperating, uh, and that this reminds him of what happened with Cassidy Hutchinson and her allegedly conflicted counsel before. So I think... But I, I, you know, we're talking about imputing criminal activity to somebody, and I want to be very careful about that always. The answer to this question is it really depends on the facts. And if the witness is prepared to testify, my lawyer told me to say X, knowing that it was false, it's very different from if there was something softer than that. And so you really, really want to know exactly what the witness is or is not prepared to say before you would make a judgment on that. On the other hand, if the answer to that question is somebody very directly urged the uh, making of false statements to a grand jury, yes, that could produce a criminal referral. Or, by the way, a direct prosecution. The special counsel has the authority, doesn't need to refer it. He has the authority to prosecute uh, efforts to obstruct his investigation. All right, uh, Richard Wattenbarger, it is great to see your name and see you here. Uh, and the floor is yours for however many of these questions move you. Okay, thank you. My question has to do with how Trump is funding his criminal defense. And I've heard different things about where this money is coming from. So I, I'm curious, uh, I, or I, but I'd like to know, can he in fact use, what donations can he use? Can he use donations to his campaign? What about donations to his PAC? And uh, so uh, I, I'm re I, yeah, I'd really like to know about that. All right. Who knows the answer to this question? I don't really, but I can, I think I might know part of the answer. Um, in terms of his personal funds or campaign funds, or I mean, obviously for his personal funds, I, I believe he could do whatever he liked. For, for the specifics of his campaign funds, I don't know. I will say the New York Times um, has done some reporting on the use of funds from the PAC to pay for Trump's legal fees and for the legal fees of others for whom he's paying for counsel. And it seems, as far as I can tell, that the takeaway is nobody is 100% sure. It was fine before he declared himself to be a candidate, 
once he is a political candidate, then you could run into the problem of if a PAC is paying your legal bills, then that counts as a contribution, uh, which is unlawful. I've also, though, seen a suggestion that it turns to some extent on the question of whether the prosecutions are distinct from the campaign. So if they're campaign related, then you could spend it. But if they're not, then you can't. Campaign finance law is famously difficult and convoluted, and I definitely don't want to hold myself out um, as an expert on it. But this is what I've gathered just from reading the reporting. Um, So I think the takeaway on the PAC, at least, is that the answer is, it's just not clear. Yeah, I think you can say safely that the they are being aggressive and there are a few possible constraints. One is the campaign finance law itself. What are you allowed to spend on personal legal bills uh, for alleged criminal activity of the candidate or somebody else? The second issue is fraud. Right. So if you are soliciting donations on one basis and spending it on another, is the the solicitation of the donation fraudulent? And the answer to that question, of course, depends on basically the click through agreement that you're setting up for the donor. You know, what are you saying you're going to spend money on? And They've probably lawyered this pretty well, but, you know, you'd want to make sure uh, it would be interesting to go through and figure out what what the different committees that are raising money are actually saying they're spending money on. There's Yeah, I also I want to correct myself and clarify something because I think I might have gotten something slightly backwards. So my my understanding, and again, this is from the news reporting, is that if the defense money is linked to the campaign, then Trump could spend his own campaign money on it. But if that were the case, then the PAC might be limited in what it could spend because spending money on it would be a campaign contribution, potentially. So just to to say, I I think that there's kind of a double-edged sword there, whichever option they pick, um, they may be foreclosing different uh, streams of funding. Yeah. So unfortunately, the lawfare person who is yeah. the um, uh, <laughs> most expert in campaign finance uh, law is occupied these days, Bob Bauer, and has not been able to uh, do a lot of work with us for reasons that uh, will be uh, clear if you Google his name. Um, Ruthie, the floor is yours. I'm curious about the impact of if Giuliani and the other attorneys are censured or disbarred or whatever happens to them, the impact of then Trump turning around and saying, well, I depended on them and they were obviously doing bad things. Yeah. So this is a great question. And I think I'm curious, Serafin, for your view of this, you know, we sort of waded through the advice of counsel defense issues in the piece we wrote a couple weeks ago. It seems to me part of the answer to that question, first of all, in the District of Columbia, there's a, a pretty solid answer to that question, which is uh, there's a bar against using that defense if the 
lawyers in question are co-conspirators, which they are alleged to be in this situation. So the question of the applicability of the defense at all arises, even if they're not disbarred. But it does seem to me that the optics of the defense get even worse if you say, well, I relied on the good faith. My, in, I relied in good faith on my excellent, you know, famed lawyer, disbarred, indicted attorney, so-and-so, right? Like that, that actually, you know, I mean, imagine that being presented to a jury and query how you get that defense in without taking the stand yourself and saying that you relied on so-and-so's defense. But imagine being cross-examined if you did, you know, were you aware that that attorney so-and-so's uh, arguments for you would produce bar discipline against so-and-so? Were you aware that attorney so-and-so has been, are you aware that they've been disbarred over their legal advice to you, right? It, it's not the kind of defense that is optimal to present to a jury. And I do think it has, you know, the worse it gets for the lawyers, the less good it is as a as a defense. I don't know. What do you think, Serafin? I agree with that. And another point is, it's not a good look for Trump if he testifies or if he's asked, well, why didn't you take the advice of the other attorneys, a plethora of attorneys who gave you advice to the contrary, and they haven't been disbarred. So I would also add that as um, not being a very attractive thing for Trump to argue. Yeah, that's a really, that's actually a really important point, right? Because this isn't a situation where, you know, I have one lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, I don't have access to a lot of people, but I have this one lawyer who's, you know, respectable person and she advises me X and I do in good faith what she says and then I get indicted for it, right? That's the, here, you're the president of the United States. You have White House counsel, you have Justice Department lawyers, you have campaign lawyers, and you have personal lawyers, and they're all advising you the same thing, which is don't do this, except for the crackpots whom, whose advice you zero in on and you ignore first-rate legal advice. I mean, you know, whatever people think of Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin, they are excellent, excellent lawyers. Whatever you think of Steve Engel, the head of OLC, um, he is a superb lawyer, right? And so you have the camp of, of the really first-rate lawyers, all of them saying the same thing. And then you have the crazies um, and you go out of your way to follow the crazies advice. They all get indicted and disbarred. You know, it's a, there's a bit of a forum shopping problem there on, on your part. There's also, I think it's worth mentioning, uh, there's with some reporting in Rolling Stone that the special counsel's office has been asking questions about Giuliani's drinking on election night 2020 and in advance. Um, so if listeners recall, there was testimony uh, 
unveiled by the January 6th committee that Giuliani was allegedly quite inebriated on election night when he initially suggested that Trump should try to contest the election. I mean, I was inebriated on election (laughs) night too. I just wasn't, I just wasn't advising the president. Right. And so, and I, I think that the one possibility that could flow from that story is that you know, it's even harder to make an advice of counsel defense if not only has your lawyer, you know, facing ethics charges over their conduct on the relevant legal advice, but they also may not have even been capable of giving advice if they were uh, under the influence. So just to add another element to that. All right. Uh, Graham, the floor is yours. Thanks. Um, After Fannie Willis indicted 19 co-conspirators in Fulton County, there was a lot of speculation that people would flip, especially some of the lower level conspirators um, who incidentally are not having their legal defenses paid for by, uh, by, by the Trump pack. So when would we expect to see that happen? I know it's early days. There's still motions to sever and speedy trial act. And Related to that, um, there was some speculation early on that the speedy trial, if if some of them go through, um, like for Chesboro, that it would put Fannie Willis at a disadvantage and perhaps preview her case for the other defendants. But I'm wondering if it might also be the case that it would induce a lot more people to flip if she manages to get a guilty verdict um, on, on a more limited scope with some of those defendants. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm curious what everyone else thinks. I think you raise a really good point that uh, guilty verdict, and it depends, right, on which charges and uh, what the circumstances are. But I, I think that that could be something that puts a little bit more pressure on uh, some of these folks to potentially cooperate. Uh especially with the Sidney Powell, uh, you know, the Coffee County breach. I think that if, if Sidney Powell is, is found guilty of, uh, some of those breaches, you know, notwithstanding some of the questions on that, that people think they could raise on appeal. Um, I think that some of those folks who were even more involved, uh, in it than Sidney Powell was, you know, she paid for it and, and potentially had some more involvement with coordination. But uh, there's there's a, a, a lot of evidence against uh, Hampton and Hall and, and Latham in that respect. So I would think that those would be some of the folks who would be under a lot of pressure because they're also some of the folks who um, probably have some some the least amount of means uh, to, you know, fight a very long legal battle in a RICO trial that is likely to be very expensive. Um, so I, I but, you know, Ben, uh, Quinta, Serafin, do you guys have thoughts on that? I mean, my only thought on it is that the quieter a defendant is right now, the more likely that person is to be having uh, heart to heart with their own defense lawyers and the more likely their defense lawyers are to be in uh, regular and constructive contact with uh, Fannie Willis's people. The ones who are shaking trees and making a lot of noise right now that is the kind of thing you do to gain positioning in advance of a plea uh, discussion 
or a trial, not something that you do kind of while you're having that discussion. And so I would look to the ones who are not filing the loud motions or going on Laura Ingram or, or, and I, I would think those would be the ones you might, you might not be surprised to see relatively swift agreements. The other time that people generally speaking reach plea agreements is the eve of trial. And, you know, you, there's nothing, you know, the old saying, there's nothing like a hanging to concentrate the mind goes for trial dates too. Once, once a trial date is settled and firm, you end up in a kind of game of chicken uh, between the defense and the prosecution where they really speed the cars at each other and then uh, see if they can work something out just before trial happens. And you saw that happen with uh, Dominion Voting Systems and Fox News the other day, right? It was literally it was the afternoon of trial, uh, but that'll sometimes happen in criminal cases too. For Fannie Willis, when you have 19 co-defendants, they are not all evenly evenly situated. There's a top tier set whom you're going to, the cost of an an agreement is going to be a very pricey plea. And then there's a lower tier set whom you will plead out relatively easily. Some of the uh, lesser named people who are just kind of functionaries, fake electors or party functionaries, she will plead out relatively easily in exchange for cooperation. And so I think you look for the ones who are not making a lot of noise, look for things to happen as trial date gets a little bit closer. All right. I think we have uh, one more question uh, from Joran. The Court of Appeals ruled that John Eastman's testimony in his disbarment proceedings constituted a Fifth Amendment waiver. With uh, Mark Meadows' testimony on Monday in support of removal, could the lawfare experts address the scope of these waivers, including their impact on attorney-client and executive privilege? I understand that the former president holds these privileges, but I don't think he objected. So... Loosely speaking, I I am not a Fifth Amendment expert by any means, and I don't want to hold myself out as one. Anything that Meadows or Eastman said is certainly usable against him, um, them. Uh, The question of whether it constitutes a broader waiver, however, is one that I don't know the answer to, i.e. whether he can now be made to testify further because he's waived. I don't know the answer to that. And I actually, some part of me is skeptical of that. Anna or Seraphine or Quinta, whether you guys have instincts about that, and Quinta, particularly if you have a sense of the scope of the Eastman waiver as a result of the your work on the attorney discipline cases. I'd love to hear from you on that. Yeah. So I'll just say on the on the Eastman thing. So that that was just a ruling from the 
judge in the California bar discipline case. So this is a judge of Roland, who is a judge of the state bar court. And the ruling was specifically Eastman was had been arguing, you know, we should essentially put this case on ice because I'm going to face this difficult decision of if I plead the fifth here, you're going to hold that against me, but I need to do it in order to uh, prevent myself from opening myself up to potential liability in the criminal cases or case and potentially cases against me. Um, and the the judge essentially said that is not actually on the table anymore because Eastman had testified extensively on the issues in question before anyway. So that was very specific to the particular bar proceedings, which I think it's important to distinguish from the criminal proceedings which are under a different jurisdiction and a completely different process. So I can't speak to anything outside that, but that is my understanding of the situation with Eastman. It's very narrow. But Eastman's also spoken publicly in various forums, right? I mean, he he was on Fox (laughs) News the other night. And so, you know, the question of what kind of to what extent he may have waived waived various privileges uh, on the executive privilege question, the answer is very simple, which is at least in federal court. I don't know that it's ever been tested in state court. There is no executive privilege facing a, well, starting with a grand jury. And remember the Watergate tapes subpoena uh, was a for the tapes was a trial subpoena, uh, not a grand jury subpoena, and the so the the ruling that the executive privilege yields to the needs of the criminal process uh, is then extended during the Starr investigation to the grand jury testimonial process, and so f- as a factual matter, as a functional matter in the D.C. Circuit. There is no executive privilege in the face of the criminal process's need. There are some hypothetical examples you could raise where that wouldn't be true. But as a functional matter, if the trial needs Mark Meadows' testimony and he asserts executive privilege or Trump does, there's going to be a very quick and dirty, yes, there's executive privilege. Yes, the former president may control it to some degree, but even assuming it exists, it yields in the face of the trial court's needs here. And that's going to be the end of the analysis as it was in the grand jury case here. So, you know, there may, it may be a little bit, it may be more complicated with in the Fifth Amendment case, but the executive privilege case is going to be very simple. Go ahead, Anna. Oh, I don't have much more to add other than that I was just going to say this is a question I've been wondering about myself. I think that I because I started looking into this and I think that it it seems like this would not be a waiver of his Fifth Amendment rights at trial because it's a preliminary hearing on a specific issue. Um, but I I need to look into that. So thanks for uh, the reminder that, you know, this is this is something to to research. We are going to leave it there. Seraphine, Anna, Quinta, thank you for joining us. I have no idea what's going to happen over the next week, but uh, whatever it is, we will be back to chew it over at 4 p.m. Eastern time next Thursday. 
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineers this episode are the great Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo and Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Hey, folks, you know you want to join these conversations live, get your questions answered. So become a material supporter of Lawfare. You know how to do it. Lawfaremedia.org slash support. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.